Well, hello, my name is Mark Bearden, and I'll be leading us through this uh, lesson. So let me ask if you would, if you would turn to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to look at probably the most well-known parable in all the Bible, the parable of the prodigal son, and probably one of the most mistaught parables in all the Bible. So we're going to look at it, and we're going to focus, as the lesson does, primarily on the older brother, but we're going to go through the whole story and look at what Jesus was trying to communicate in this parable. As with any parable, the key to understanding it is to see what preceded it. Because Jesus always told parables in response to events. So if you have your Bibles, look at verses 1 and 2, and we'll see what preceded this parable. It says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. But the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so in response to that event, Jesus then told three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of what we call the prodigal son. Now, by the way, the word prodigal is an old English word that means to be a spendthrift or to be loose with money. And really, the better word would be the rebel. And where we often make a mistake in this parable, and I've heard this taught many times this way, is that this parable is about lost people and judgmental Christians. And I've heard preachers even preach it that way. But that's not what this parable is about. Because if you look at verses 1 and 2, and apply it to the parable, remember the younger brother represents the sinners who were coming to Jesus, and the older brother represents the Pharisees. And so what you in essence have is two prodigals, two rebels in this story. And it's not a story about lost people and judgmental Christians. It's a story about who receives the grace of God, who gets God's mercy. And so let's begin reading through this parable. Beginning in verse 11, it says, And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Now, just real quickly there, interestingly, the son, when he asks for his part of the wealth, he, he doesn't use the common word in the Greek there for inheritance. He uses a word that would be translated loosely, stuff, possessions. And so he doesn't ask for his inheritance, he asks for stuff. And because, you see, inheritance implies responsibility, that others have earned this, others have sacrificed for it, uh, responsibility to take care of those under your charge. And he doesn't want the responsibility, he just wants the possession. And the father, to the horror of the Pharisees who would have been listening to this story, doesn't slap the son in the face, doesn't belittle him, he actually gives it to him. And so to the Jewish mind, this is shocking, this is just shameful that the son would ask this to, in essence, say to his father, I want you to act like you're dead and give me what's mine. And for the father that didn't give it to him was, was just a shocking thing. And you'll see that theme throughout this parable, that, that it's, it's a shameful event, that Middle Eastern mind of honor and shame. And every step seems to be shameful, and every step would have been just appalling to the Pharisees. So after he gives him his wealth, verse 13 it says, And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country, which is simply a way of saying he went into Gentile territory. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. And the word there literally has the idea of throwing it to the wind. So he took all this money that others had earned and he threw it to the wind. It says, Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country and he began to be impoverished. We don't know or understand in our culture today 
the idea of a famine, but famines were terrible things. Uh, people starved to death. People literally would get so desperate they would eat stray animals. They would even, uh, records say, cook their own clothes and try to eat the glue and the leather in them uh, just because it was a desperate time. And so what's happening here is God often does with a prodigal is he's closing the door or the faucet of blessing to put pressure on him. And, and that's a real lesson for those of us who have prodigal children or even prodigal grandchildren is that God will often shut off the faucet of his provision to bring that prodigal back to himself. And the difficulty when we love somebody is to allow God to do that and not intervene. We'll talk about that a little more in just a moment. It says, so he went and hired himself to one of the citizens, this is verse 15, of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. So the younger son still has plan B. Uh, he thinks he can figure this out. He thinks he can survive. And he kind of literally, it says he glued himself. He attached himself to this man. And the man, just to get rid of him, sends him out into the fields to feed his pigs, which was a, a very shameful thing. Again, there's that, that idea of shame. He's blown his money, immoral living, and now he, as a Jewish young man, is actually feeding pigs out in the field. And it's just a humiliating thing. And it says, verse 16, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And look at this phrase, and no one was giving anything to him. No man gave him anything. You see, again, what God will do with a prodigal is he will shut down his provision uh, to bring stress. Years ago, a missionary by the name of Amy Carmichael in India uh, was dealing with an issue of discipline within her mission organization. She was very grieved after the encounter, and she sat down one night, and she wrote a little book, and the book is called If, and it's just 30 statements, and they all begin with, if such and such is true, they end with this statement, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. And, and listen to this statement she wrote in reference to, to this very parable. She said, if I cannot bear to be like the father who did not soften the rigors of the far country... If in this sense I refuse to allow the law of God, which says the way of transgressors is hard in Proverbs, to take effect because of the distress it causes me to see that law in operation, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. You see, there are times that we have to allow God to get the attention of those who are in rebellion. And it's hard, particularly when we love somebody, to not want to try to rescue them from the cross, in a sense, rescue them from what God's going to use to bring them to repentance. And, and so it says there that no man gave him anything, and that he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. Now, these were carob pods, and you could eat the nut or the fruit, but the pod itself was inedible for humans. So they were fed to pigs who could digest them. And he was so desperate, so hungry, that he looked at this pig food, these pods, and was longing to eat those. Now, verse 17 is that wonderful moment of turning. He says, but when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, you know, I think every person who has ever come to Christ, whether they did it at four years old or whether they did it at 80 years old, has had that moment where they came to themselves. And, and we would put it this way, his, his head was screwed on right. He, he Finally, the light came on. And he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread but I am dying here with hunger. Now, this is interesting because the revelation that came to him, the understanding that came to him, 
was a realization of how good his father was. You see, a hired hand in that day was at the very lowest point of the, the social order, the pecking system. A hired hand had to find work every day to survive. And if they didn't find work, then they didn't eat that day. In fact, in the Old Testament, God commands that if, a, if you hire a hired laborer, that you are required to pay him that day, not wait till tomorrow. And the reason is that he needs to eat. And so you don't wait till tomorrow to pay him. You, you pay him that day. And if it's bad weather or there's no work available or you're injured or you're sick, you simply don't have any means to make a living. So they were kind of the lowest on the social scale. And, and what the younger son says to himself is, even these lowest my father provides for. Now that phrase, more than enough, is a little bit unfortunate because sometimes we get the idea that it means, you know, there's enough and he gave just a little bit more. But that word literally means to abound or overflow. And if you look in 1 Thessalonians, it's the word that Paul uses when he talks about the thanksgiving that should be in our life, that we should be abounding, we should be overflowing with thanksgiving. And so this, this son says to himself, my father took these lowest people and he abounded, he blessed them. And it was that goodness that realization of that goodness that saw, caused him to see his sin in the proper light. You see, it's not just that we see our sin. We have to see our sin as sinful. And we only see our sin as sinful in the light of God's goodness. And see, the son had been with his father all those years, and he had never seen it. It was there, but he never really saw it. And now the light comes on, and he realizes it. So he now decides, verse 18, he says, I will get up and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And that's the, one of the marks, by the way, of true repentance is that it makes no demands. It simply humbles itself and asks for mercy. So verse 20, he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, in this culture, and really still today in Middle Eastern culture, men simply don't run. It's not considered proper. Uh, back then, you wore a tunic. You had to pull it up between your legs and forward, and you bore your legs to be able to run. And, and this was so shocking to the sensibilities of, of the Middle East uh, that one commentator noted that for 800 years, the Arabic translation of the Bible refused to use the word ran because it so shocked their sensibilities. And so they would use terms like he hurried or he moved. Uh, but the Bible says that he ran. The father literally ran to the son. And again, to the Pharisees listening to this, this is shameful. This is the father's dishonoring himself by running. But it may be that the father wanted to rescue the younger son from the reproach of the village and all that would come upon him. But he runs to meet him and he embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, verse 21, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It's interesting the father doesn't even let him finish because the next statement was to be, make me as one of your hired hands. And before he can even say it, verse 22, but the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Uh, all these are marks of restoration. He's being restored to authority. He's being restored as a son. He's being restored in honor. And, and what the father is doing is forgiving 
extending grace to the son who comes to him humbled. And bring the fatted calf, verse 23, and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. And he was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now again, remember here, a part of the message that God is trying to teach through these parables that Jesus was trying to communicate to the Pharisees is the very thing that makes you so angry that you say is wrong is the very thing that God is finding joy over. And so you are disconnected from the heart of God because you should be rejoicing that these sinners are coming, but instead you're angry about it. And we'll see that because in verse 25, we're introduced to the older brother. Now, what's interesting here is the older brother, we're 75% through this story before he even shows up. And we wouldn't even know that there was another brother, except the very first sentence, Jesus says a man had two sons. And so this son was not present. We don't see him there consoling the father when the younger son left. We don't see him there talking to his younger brother, urging him not to make the step. He's just absent. Because what you have in this parable, remember, you have a prodigal in a far country, and you have a prodigal in a far field. And both of them are separated from the heart of God. Now, just like the Pharisees were in one sense nearer to God because they had the history and they had the word and they had the law and they had God's favor, that that older brother in one sense of proximity was nearer to the father and yet his heart was further away because the younger son receives mercy. Now in verse 25, the older son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So he hears a celebration go on. Now I don't know how you hear dancing, but he could hear that. And so this, this was quite a celebration. And the fatted calf was something that you saved for the greatest of celebrations. And, and that's what they're doing at the return of the son. And so this older son comes in and he hears this commotion. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could mean. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him safe and sound. Now that word sound, interestingly, in the New Testament is used often of sound doctrine. And so in a way, what, he's, what the servant is saying is, your brother is safe physically, he's back, and he's sound, he's got his head screwed on right, he's, he's thinking correctly now. Now, in finding, instead of finding joy in that, verse 28 says, but he became angry. Now, what I want to do is our lesson focuses on this part, particularly the older brother, I want to share with you four characteristics of a pharisaical heart, uh, of a judgmental heart. And the first one is simply this, and you see it in that statement, he became angry, is a Pharisee hates the idea of grace. Because you see, a pharisaical or legalistic heart lives by their own self-righteousness and their own works. And so the idea of, of receiving grace or someone getting grace, they hate that idea. And, and really, as we apply that to us, that's a real challenge. When you think of people who are sinful or in rebellion, does your heart want to see them come to repentance? Or does your heart want to see them get what they have coming to them? Get, getting what they deserve, in a sense. And, and a heart of grace says, Lord, would you bring them to repentance? You see, vengeance is God's. And, and discipline is God's. That's in His purview. But often we, we want to see people suffer. In, in Buchanan, Michigan, 
where the organization I a mission organization I've been with for many years is located. In the, in the town cemetery, there's a giant monument there uh, built by a man named Joseph Coveney. And he died in the 1800s. Before he died, he built this monument to atheism. And he built it for $10,000, which was a huge sum of money in the 1800s. And what he did was he just put all over this monument, uh, he said, a monument to a free thinker, blasphemies, quotations of Scripture, statements about the non-existence of God. And most of those have weathered away. And when he died, his children had some of the more blasphemous ones removed. But I remember looking at this monument, and one of the statements he made was this. He said, The infidel sees the sinner in need and rushes to his aid. The Christian prays for his damnation. And I thought to myself, you know, this man probably met one of those kind of Christians who, who hope for damnation because grace is just repellent to them. Well, he became angry. And it says he was unwilling to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. Now, again, this is a picture of Jesus pleading with the Jews, pleading with the Pharisees uh, that the kingdom of God was at hand and that he was the Messiah and to come in, in a sense, to what God was doing. But again, just like the Pharisees didn't, verse 29 says, But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. Now, the second thing that characterizes a Pharisee is this. Uh, he defines his religion by what he does and doesn't do. Because you notice there what he says is, I've never done this, I've never defied a command you gave, and I've done everything you've asked. So in his mind, his faith was defined by what he did and didn't do. Now, obviously, as Christians, we want to do and live outwardly in the right way. But the real issue comes down to the heart. It's not just do you do the right things, but do you do the right things for the right reasons? And Jesus, particularly, in, when you think of, of you know, the sins we say we don't do, drunkenness and, and adultery and lying and stealing, you know, Jesus said it goes deeper than that. It goes to the heart. If you covet, then you've stolen. If, if you lust after a woman, then you've committed adultery. And so what happens is a Pharisee, a legalist, defines his Christianity by his conduct, the things he does, and, and that really described the Pharisees. That's, by the way, why Paul says that, he said, I say this even with tears, that many live as enemies. Not, he, interestingly, he doesn't say of Christ. He said many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Uh, because, you see, the cross is where men are condemned as guilty. It's where their works are insufficient. And only grace and a sacrifice can pay for their sin. And so that's why men, legalistic men, live as enemies to the cross. And so he said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you never, you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. Now, the third thing that characterizes a Pharisee is that his righteousness is based on comparison. He considers himself righteous because he compares himself with other people. Now, this is the reality. Self-righteousness can only exist in the realm of human comparison. That's the only way we can ever feel self-righteous is if we look at other people 
and, and compare ourselves to that. And you know what? We can always find somebody that's worse than us, right? And now I, I hope that we don't compare ourselves to a lost world uh, because when the world sins, that's all they can do. They can't not sin. But what we tend to do is we tend to, to look at ourselves and say, you know, my marriage isn't the best, but at least I'm not divorcing like that family. And my thoughts aren't the best, but at least I'm not doing what that guy did. And and my language isn't the best, but at least I'm not saying the things those people are saying. And, and we set up a standard that we can meet. Now, the reality is the only standard that we have is the plumb line of God's Word. And whenever we use that as our standard, the life of Christ, the living Word, and His written Word will always be humbled. We'll never feel self-righteous if we look to the standard that God sets. So the third quality is this righteousness is based on comparison. And then finally, the, f- the final quality is uh, the Pharisee feels like they deserve God's favor. And that's what the older son says. He said, you never did that for me. In essence, what he's saying is what you're doing for my brother is wrong, and I should have gotten this calf. I deserve it. And that's the heart of a legalistic person is they, they believe they deserve God's favor that God should favor them because they are such good people, because I do the right things. God should treat me a certain way. And so what happens is when, when that doesn't happen, because you know the reality of life is there is sickness and there is suffering and there are trials, and, and even the best, most righteous people, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And, and we all go through those kinds of trials. And even the most righteous face those things. And if you live with an expectation that you don't deserve it, uh, then you'll never learn the right lessons as you go through trials and suffering because God brings those as just part of life. And and so let's finish out the parable here. And the, The son in verse 29 said, I never disobeyed a command and you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Verse 30, but when it's, but when the son of yours doesn't even call him his brother there, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. And that was true, by the way, because the younger son had blown his inheritance. Everything now belonged to the older son. Verse 32, but we had to celebrate. That's an interesting statement. It was required. We had to celebrate. And rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Now, as the Pharisees listened to this parable, every step of the way they would have been shocked. And it was just a shameful thing. The father giving the son, the son asking for the money, the father giving it, the son blowing it, the son feeding the pigs, the son coming back, the father running to him, the father restoring him, the father celebrating. That was all shameful to them. So when the older son steps up and questions it, the Pharisees would have thought to themselves, finally, (laughs) finally, someone who's thinking right, finally, someone who's seeing things correctly. You know, Don Richardson, who was a missionary to New Guinea many years ago, wrote the book Peace Child, and he describes in that book going into a tribe, and he was teaching this tribe about Jesus and the story of Jesus' life. And now this tribe had in in their culture this virtue of betrayal, and what they would do is they would betray 
members of neighboring tribes, develop friendships with them, lead them along, and then ultimately kill them. And then they would tell stories about these great betrayals. Well, as Don Richardson was telling about the life of Jesus, when men got excited in this tribe, we would applaud. What they would do is take two fingers and tap their chest and make kind of a ooh-ooh sound. And he said suddenly as he was telling this story, the men got excited and they began tapping their chest and going ooh-ooh-ooh. And But to his horror, he realized it was because he was talking about Judas. And these men got just thrilled because that was their virtue. Judas was the great betrayer. And instead of Jesus becoming their hero, Judas was becoming their hero. And in a sense, that's what the Pharisees would have been doing when this older brother comes up. They would have been tapping their chests and saying, ooh, ooh, finally, finally someone who sees things right. Now, the wonderful end of that story, by the way, is that the tribe had a, a tradition that if you were at war with another tribe, you would give that tribe a child, a peace child. And as long as that child lived, there could be no war between the tribes. And the worst thing you could ever do is betray a peace child. And he was able to share with them that Jesus was the peace child and that he had been betrayed by Judas. And so as this, this parable ends, one of the interesting things about the conclusion here is that there really is no conclusion. You don't know what happened. You don't know if the older son came back and said, Dad, you're right, and came into the party. We're not told if the younger son went out and talked to his brother. We're not told anything about what happened. But the reason this parable ends at this point is for this reason, because it ended exactly where Jesus was at that moment, with the sinners coming to him and receiving grace, and the Pharisees judging them and staying back. And if you play this parable on out to its end, what eventually happened, the way this parable would have ended is the older brother would have killed the father, would have picked up a board and and struck him or killed him or done something like that, because ultimately that's what the Pharisees did. They rejected Jesus, and by that they were rejecting God the Father, and the sinners found grace in Jesus' presence. So so the great lesson of the parable of the prodigal son is that when we sin and come to the end of ourselves and we realize the goodness of God and we humble ourselves before God, we will always find grace. You see, Satan will always tell you, you've got to get good enough to come to God. And God will always say, no, you've got to come to me. You'll never be good enough. I can make you good enough through the blood of Christ. So God bless you and thank you for this time. Have a good day.